You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome, one and all, to the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, and this is our after Christmas episode. I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm just kind of dating myself. It's the after Christmas episode. This episode has nothing to do with Christmas, actually. And uh, that is really all I have to say. That's probably the last time I'm actually going to mention Christmas again. So um, enjoy that, I suppose. This is episode 72 of the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast. And tonight, the real talk with the Pimpcron is that miniature games are a pretty bad investment, actually, for game companies. If they're making miniature games, it's kind of the worst choice you possibly could do. And I will get into that later on. We also have a test rack mailbox from a guy that I murdered his name. I think it is Pieter. And he has a brutality question about dealing with one of the perceived most powerful units in the game. And um, I, you know, kind of help him uh, strategize on that. And hopefully you'll listen to that. Uh, finally, I have uh, McStorman and I get on with the Azerite Chapel. Azerite Chapel, I guess. And uh, we discuss that. Do we like it? Do we not? I don't know. You got to listen. That's how this, this is how this works if you're new to this show. What have I been up to? Well, we had a tournament yesterday at my local uh, club, and we don't normally do tournaments. We're a pretty casual group. But you know what? I wanted to try out the new format for Danger Zone for Shorehammer 2020, and I figured why not run a little tournament? Uh, we had, uh, you know, a fairly good size number of people we had um uh eight people show up and uh which of course for us living in a black hole of hobbying that's actually really really good because on any given week we have six or eight people show up for a week uh and we have probably like 12 or 15 total players but most of them don't come each week they come you know every other week or once a month or whatever so uh of course work and and life gets in the way that way but i uh I was able to almost get first place. That's right, almost. After the first round, I was tied for first place. After the second round, I was tied for first place. And then third play, uh, the third round, I got a little overzealous with my Necron Destroyers, and I, if I was a little more cautious, I would have lost that third game but actually won the tournament. And I was not cautious, so I still lost that thir- third game, and I missed the first place by one point, which was really, uh, it was 100% my fault. I completely know exactly the moment. Um, I always preach it's very important for you to get better as a player, to know when you make mistakes and where you could have done better and all of that. And this is definitely one of those times where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can pinpoint the exact moment that I made the bad decision, which cost me the tournament. Now, second place, I'm still thrilled with, you know, but I have gotten second or third place in local tournaments, like, I can't tell you how many, th- like, three times, I think, in the last ten years, I've gotten second or third place, and we only do, like, one, we've probably done eight tournaments total, and, like, three games or four games I've gotten second or third place, um, and I just never, I'm always the bridesmaid, never the bride, and... This was just another one of those cases that it wasn't the dice, it wasn't my codex. Um, actually, my third game was a ball buster. It was an awesome, awesome strategic game. And I just got overzealous with the destroyers. I thought they would be able to do more than they actually could 
to um, a bunch of dark angels. And um, unfortunately, he uh, his thunder hammer came in with like he was buffed up and he was like five attacks or six attacks with his character and a thunder hammer. And uh, you'll know that uh, destroyers are three wounds each and his thunder hammer does three damage each. So he just smashed those destroyers. I, I came in there with my will be done and I was hitting on twos and three shots each and all that. But and I did damage. I wiped out, you know, a squad or two inside that building, but it just wasn't enough. And that's entirely my fault. But it was a really fun time. Uh, what else is going on? We got a nice letter from uh, our overlord, Mike. Uh, from the Patreon dynasty, the Pimpcron Patreon dynasty. And um, I won't get into all that, but he was very nice, and he, he wrote us a very nice letter and um, wished us, you know, Merry Christmas and all that, and just touch base. Uh, I was not going to make that the Tesseract mailbox because, you know, I'm not going to advertise and, and flaunt every single letter that you guys send. It's usually if I have something to say about it that I think the audience would think would be interesting because I just replied to Mike and, you know, talked back to him and, and said thank you and Merry Christmas and all that. So, um, but I'm, I'm just not going to air that because I don't, not sure that would be interesting for you guys to hear just a bunch of, you know, like, Hey, thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. Hey, great job. Oh, thanks. You know, I just, whatever. So, <laughs> so that's why that's not the Tesseract mailbox, but I greatly do appreciate, appreciate the message, Mike. And thank you for supporting the show. Um, it means a ton to me. I, I do really do appreciate it. And thank you for all my other Patreon patrons because uh this does take quite a bit of work each week and um in in addition to the articles and brutality and all that so um from the bottom of my heart thank you very much this has been a great year and um i appreciate your guys support and i appreciate everybody that is listening because without you i would not do it like if i if i logged on and i got two listens a week then i'd be like you know what i'm not doing this anymore and um when i started it over a year ago a year and a third ago i guess um, I decided, I was like, man, you know, if, if nobody listens, look, I'm going to try this. Let me get a dozen episodes under my belt. If nobody listens, then that's just the way it is. You know, I tried and the point in life is to not live with regrets. And if I had wanted to do this and didn't try it, then I would have regrets. But if I try it and fail, I don't really have regrets because, oh, it's not going to work out, but at least I know it's not going to work out. And that's a really valuable, um, a valuable lesson, I think. And, uh, I do on a, uh, another note, I have to give a shout out to Scarab Cluster 7702 for earning your battle honors in the second game of that tournament. I'm not lying to you. These Scarabs put in work. They did like eight damage, eight unsaved damage to a, uh, I think it's called an executioner. It's the man. It's my buddy Derek's tank. Uh, it is not a repulsor, but the other one, the other version of it. I think it's an executioner. And um, they did like eight unsaved damage to him. And they chased that unit of scarabs, chased that repulsor cousin around the whole board. And at the very end of the game, if I'm not mistaken, those scarabs got me line breaker. I had one base of scarabs left that I'm positive of. And it either had one wound left or two wounds left. I think it was one base left with one wound left. And that little scarab was carrying two relic objectives and got me line breaker. I'm not lying to you. And it is going to get a brand new paint job. And I name all of my uh, battle honor units by the Necrons. I have different, they're all four digits and they're all uh, different classes. Like my uh, flayed ones are six, six, and then whatever the number is in the order that they got honors. 
So um, I have like four or five flayed ones with battle honors. So it would be like 6601, 6602. Well, this is the second unit of scarabs to ever get battle honors, and it is my class of scarabs are the sevens. So 7702, you little set of scarabs, you're adorable, and you put in work against that executioner. So I think that is enough of me blabbering on. Let's get on with the show, and hopefully you enjoy it, and hopefully you had a great Christmas, and also, hopefully, you have a great New Year. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. At this point, I would like to take just a moment and thank all of my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling patrons on the Pimpcron Dynasty on Patreon. Starting with the Gold Trim Scarabs, we have Brendan, followed by the Funky Warriors LT, Nate R, Tom R, and Mandy W. Then we have the Badass Cryptex, Andy B, and Brandon K, and Colin M. And finally, we have our mother flippin' lord, the king of the mountain, Mike C. Yep. So thank you very much, everybody, for uh, listening to the show and supporting me and supporting the show. And it's a great feeling when people actually appreciate what you do. It takes a lot of time to write articles each week. It takes a lot of time to do the podcast each week. And I just truly, truly appreciate all of your love and your support. So let's get on with the show. On this edition of the Tesseract Mailbox, we have a letter from, I'm sorry if I murder your name, I believe it's just pronounced Peter, but, or maybe it's Pietre, Pieter, it's P-I-O-T-R, so Pieter, I think, Peter, Pieter, I don't know, I'm sorry, Pieter, Pieter, <laughs> Pieter, uh, right, I'm just gonna say Peter, because I'm an American, and we Americanize everything and ruin names, so... Uh, welcome to Ellis Island, Pieter, and uh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I can't, I don't know how to s- pronounce your name. But uh, he writes, Merry Christmas, Mr. Cron. Hey, I wanted to say that me and the guys have really enjoyed playing Brutality. I was going to write this on the Facebook page, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't want this on the air, so here I am. I, I have a Brutality-related problem, though. My buddy loves to min-max two breachers, in a seven-point game. I told him to fuck off, but he insists it's not wooly to take two. Being that you are the father of the game and whatnot, do you have any ways to get around Breacher Spam? He's rocking a save of seven on each of these guys, and that's when he's not making one of them the leader for the save of eight. He just runs in and can't be stopped. Please tell me you have a contingency plan for this. And it's signed, Pieter. Well, Peter, uh... There is actually many ways. So th- this is a the more you dive into this game, you you explore your options. There's many many ways to deal with breachers. So when people are first starting out in the game, usually the first thing they run to is breacher. They go, "Oh wow, the save is so good." The problem is is that intentionally melee fighters get the extra attack, so that is their benefit, but otherwise they're very very middling in their stats. They're, uh, if you're dumping all of your model traits into just the save, um, that works okay, but it does not save you from things that ignore saves. So, um, and also, like, his fighting skill is only a 50% to hit, um, his dexterity is a 50%, 
Um, his movement's six, you know, he's just not, his willpower is five. Uh, he's only got three wounds. So it's, he's very, very, he's extremely average, except he gets an extra attack and he gets all that save. So he's got a a 70% chance to save it, right? Which is a little worse than a Terminator, I believe. Uh, you know, Terminator and Warhammer's a two up. So, um, so he's essentially a Terminator. The Like I said, though, the way this game is balanced is that, sure, he can lump everything into his armor save, but then he's extremely average in everything else, i.e. not good in other things. So the way you do this is if you know the person loves to take breachers, what you need to do is focus on things that will just completely render him disabled. Uh, so what you could do is one option, a ranged option, would be uh, to take a ordnance person, and of course they give minus one to saves anyway, and they can hit more than one target if it explodes. And uh, of course you could take an artifact on that, which would be the intolerable damage, and once per game you can just completely ignore his armor save, which could be very helpful. You could also, the intolerable damage, uh, legendary trait, I'm sorry, not artifact, legendary trait intolerable damage also... Um, deals an extra minus one to his save. So there's two minus ones to his save, bringing him down to just a 50-50 with that weapon. Obviously, if you took two of them, that's fine. But um, I I've so rarely take two of the same unit in Warhammer and in Brutality because I just think versatility is a better option. So the Ordnance is one way to go. If he clumps his people up and he's not smart about it, you could be doing minus two to his save and then just one turn hit him with the ordinance and choose to completely ignore saves. If you get him like in a sweet spot where you can get both of his breachers or two or three people within that, you know, um, blast radius, you'll completely ignore his save for all of them. And that would be disgusting. Um, that would make him think twice about it. The other way, you know, we usually go for aggressiveness and we go for attacks and things like that. Well, uh, the best way, I think, to deal with them is kind of how I deal with, let's say, paladins, or Grey Knight paladins in Warhammer. Whenever there's a model or a unit that is very uh, powerful in one of the games, um, like, I'll just say paladins. The way I used to deal with paladins when they were a really big thing is that I would just avoid them. If they can't chase me down, then I will literally just avoid them. And yeah, they've got storm bolters or whatever, but they shoot very little. And that's the same thing with the Breachers here. The Breachers, if he's dumping all of his model traits into these good saves, well, just let him. Just completely avoid him. And the best way to do this would be to take a support person, which has either the um, the disrupt power, which could confuse multiple people or could pause one person. He's only going to make this on a 50-50. He's only going to unfreeze himself, unstick himself on a 50-50. Now, uh, something that really pairs well with the disrupt disruptability is that if you also take curse, because you can you can reduce his dexterity by two and then pause him. Well, now he's only got a thirty percent chance of breaking free and literally doing anything on his turn. That will neuter him very quickly. You're not killing him, but remember he only gets four activations per model per game. So any one of these turns where he's not activating, he's losing serious. Uh, chances to do something in this game. So one option would be take a support person and they have uh, disrupt for the pause and then they also have um, curse for the reducing, you know, making it harder for him to break out of the pause. 
Okay. What you could also do is you could bring a barrier. So ideally, if you have, um, if you take like a specialist that could take four powers, then I would also take barrier and then you could do that on him as well. So you could pause him and then you could uh, curse his dexterity and then you could either put a barrier up in front of the other guy, which of course is six inches long and they only move six inches. So if you're able to slow him down at all, that's a big deal. Um, those are two options. Another thing you could do is take a fanatic. If you're not going to take a specialist, I would take a support that's a fanatic because every success goes off twice. So you could double curse someone and double pause someone or put two barriers up. Either way, I kind of prefer the the pause and curse for this. Um, but you could target both of his breachers if they're in range and... The um and then they would both be cursed and both be paused, or you could just double it on one person. He'd have a dexterity of one, and he would have a ten percent chance to succeed twice on two dex checks, and that would freeze him very quickly. Um, what else could you do? Of course, uh, missile, which is one of the powers that support people get. Missile completely ignores saves. So another good thing to do would be take a fanatic so he can cast missile twice. You don't get a save against it. And you actually could be doing damage to him um, if you roll high enough for the missile. Now, of course, if you want to play the min-maxing game, you could double up on two different fanatics with the same exact powers. And you could really mess someone over. Um, now, of course, with fanatics, it's dangerous. You probably want to have uh, time slip as a free, ab a free ability on both of those because that way it'll mitigate any critical fails that you do with your uh, willpower check. But um, that, that, would be my, um, that would be my solutions, my first solutions to this. Of course, another ranged option that just came to mind would be um, take a marksman where uh, they choose the wound chart role. Now, this is a little hairy because the uh, the wound chart roll has to get through, you know. So, he still has his 70% save. You could take the um, intolerable damage on that guy, and he'd be getting a minus one to the saves. And then one, one turn per game, you could just be like, I completely ignore your save. And then you choose the wound chart roll one through eight, and you could really hurt him. Uh, now, you can't give him, you know, uh, trauma, and you can't give him... Uh, bleeding, but you can give him literally anything else. You can give him agony, slow him down. You can, um, you know, hurt his fighting skill by two, or depending on whatever chart you roll. Also, it does not hurt at all to use your, the flaming wound chart whenever you're dealing someone with breaching breacher, because the flames, you know, on a one or ten, it does just does a damage period with no saves. So if you manage to get one in there, like with your sniper or whatever, you want to make sure he's using some sort of thermal attack so that the guy, the breacher takes um, uh, burning tokens. And then, of course, you have a 20% chance per burning token to just do unsavable wounds against him. So I hope I've illustrated that, you know, sometimes in other games like Warhammer, it feels like there's no counter to things. Now, Albeit, if you play Warhammer, I believe 8th edition is probably the most versatile and most balanced out of the games, the editions I've played. But it um, brutality is specifically meant that, look, you can min-max if you want, but just this is a perfect example of the thing that most people gravitate towards. Oh, a, 
I'll save of seven if I dump all my points into it. Sure, that sounds great. They're hard to kill. Meanwhile, you're moving six inches a turn and you only hit 50% of the time. Like, that's not... Also, ranged people shoot you 50% of the time and if they aim, it'd be 70% of the time. So you're kind of a sitting duck uh, taking one breacher and, like, teleporting them, you know right into the mix and having them tank a, a, a couple things that's cool i mean that's a viable strategy taken two honestly i would do one of the things i just said and punish him for taking two breachers number one it's kind of beardy but really there's a million ways around this so uh of course there's also shenanigans that you could do um and the like the assassin remember that the assassin upgrade for the fast class uh, does two wound chart rolls uh, as soon as they get base to base contact, and those wound chart rolls, especially if you're taking the burning table, the wound chart rolls uh, get no saves, and they happen before combat. So you could be neutering him before he even attacks in close combat, which is really nice. You could also give one of those people um, the legendary trait, which I it's slipping my mind right now, but essentially you get one power um, each turn that you get to cast for free as a free action. So what I would do for them is I would cast Aura on myself again. So every time they try to target that fast person and charge him, you're getting four wound chart rolls with burning, uh, specifically, and he gets no saves on that. You're really stacking the chances of dealing unsavable damage to him, and you're essentially daring him to assault you. Uh, I'm sorry I, I talked a little long for this for the Warhammer players that don't play Brutality, but I just want to stress that there's a million ways, if you start getting creative and really learning the game, there's a million want ways to get around not. the whole Breacher thing. Same thing with Heroes and Monsters. A lot of people think here the Hero slash Monster class is super powerful. Look, I mean, it is better than all the other classes, but it's also double the points, and it's only two more wounds. So if it were double the hit points as well and all that, sure, but it isn't. So uh, once again, and there can't be more than one of the hero slash monster. So that is uh, that is something else that people quickly gravitate towards. And then the minute somebody that knows what they're doing punishes them for doing that and goes, oh, guess what? Both your breachers didn't get to activate all game because I kept pausing them and disrupting them. How do you like that? That's when... Uh, that's when they go, oh, geez, maybe I shouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. Anyway, uh, Pieter, uh, thank you for writing in, and uh, I very much appreciate you trying the game, and I will talk to you later. Hey, it's time for Want That or Want That Not. I'm here with McStorman. How's it going, dude? It's all right. <laughs> I don't know. You always ask it. I'm like, what should I say this time? And I don't, that's all I got. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. Um, they expect no better from us. Oh, okay, cool. So today we're covering the Azerite Ruined Chapel. So what is this? What are we looking at here? It looks like it's just old school, um, just more of just decorative pieces you put on a board, but not really use for shelter i don't know just, so so what's it look at what's in this there's set? a bell there's a tower like a little a ladder going up to a bell maybe for alarm or something there's also like these um, pillars some are broken like almost like a ruins uh-huh of some sort um there's what one two three four five six pieces they're not very big um yeah i don't know what 
it's just really random. Just There's like one around. part of a building. Yeah, a corner. Right? So that's that's that'd be the only place where you could like have a, a line of sight. Yeah. And everything else is exposed. So how much would you think you would pay for this? How much would you if you wanted this? How much would you say is a good price $15. for it? Fifteen dollars. I agree. 15 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of little scatter shit. Yeah. Like, just, it's not going to yeah, do yeah, anything that's just for your just game. just make your board more, make it pop more. Sure, but it doesn't help you no, in the game. No, it doesn't. That's why I agree. It's um, not really... And even that bell. That bell, look, you can see through it. So, th- yeah. that's not going to block yeah. line of sight well, or anything. Well, thing, too, like, if you want to buy, to me, if you're buying terrain, I like the, like, a, I could paint it and build it and you can actually play with it. This, you really couldn't play, it's not going to do much for you. Like, no. It's just more of just adding, adding stuff, too, but... Yeah, it, now it does, this is in the same theme as some of their other sets they've mm-hmm. done. I think it's all called Azerite. Uh-huh. And um, it's very easy. We painted some of these, um, some bigger sets of this mm-hmm. for Shorehammer. They're very easy to paint. Yeah. Uh, you just dry brush them and put a wash on them or whatever. But, uh, so we both say 15, 20 bucks. This is 60 freaking dollars yeah. for this. Absolutely not. No, too much money for um, what you get. Now, in contrast, we've already covered the Rohan Watchtower and Palisades. And that was that big wooden wall, remember, with the timbers yeah. and all that? That was 65 and it was 10 well, times better. Well, like, you could buy that and literally play a match with that. Like, yes. Th- but the, the other one, you can't play with that. It just... I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, honestly. It just, yeah, it just... You can't set that up as soon as you get it and go, all right, fight each other. Like Honestly, what would you even do with that bell tower? It no. doesn't block line of sight. No. It's not big enough to put a unit in. Mm-hmm. It literally does nothing. I guess you can make an objective... Sure. Where you got to ring the bell. You got to <laughs> ring the bell to get one objective to signal I something. You're right. That would be the only reason to have it. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of a building there, but like you said, twenty bucks tops. Yeah. For and what? How many miniatures are gonna fit behind that piece? Not much. <laughs> like nope. Seven. I don't know. Yeah. As far as as far as train sets go, I am not. You know, every once in a while, GW comes out with a train set like this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Well, people must be buying it. It just they, they put out there and see who buys it. But can you believe that that Palisade thing was sixty five, yeah. and this is sixty? And, it's, and, and the other one was more more material. Oh, way more material. So why, how can you justify charging the same amount of, for less material? I mean that that Palisade thing looks like it is was it probably of, three feet or something. Maybe because of detail. I don't know. Maybe I more detail know. costs money. I don't. Three feet of solid walls uh-huh. plus a watchtower mm-hmm. is only five more dollars than. Some scatter stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. A bell that's not useful and part of a ruin. I bet you if you compare the two people, would, if you, had, if you had to pick one, no one would pick that. No. No one would. No. They would um, pick the other one instead. They did a 40k one like this a couple years ago. Maybe it was last year because I remember uh, taking the piss out of it on the podcast as well. So it must have been last year. And um, essentially, it was the same thing. It was a couple like little ruined things. Like, what are you doing with that? It doesn't. Why would you make a rule set right where? You only get cover in Age of Sigmar or 40k if you are, like, in the area of something. So, like, if you're in the bottom of that building or maybe the top of that building, you'd get cover. But like you said, it's a little building. It's not even enough to put 10 or 20 guys in. Yeah. And then the other way of getting cover is blocking line of sight where they can't shoot you at all. And none of this blocks line of sight. Maybe the front of that building a little bit, but I think there's a door there, too. Yeah, it looks like a door. The other one's got, like, a window. So yeah. <laughs> you're not going to hide much behind that. No. So this is 100% for me, and absolutely want that not. Same here. Want yep. that not. Thanks for being on. No problem. Hey guys, thanks for checking in with the Real Talk with the Pimpcron today. We are discussing why miniatures games are a bad choice to make. 
And <laughs> that is, uh, might be sound a little weird for a Warhammer podcast, but, uh, you know, when you really think about it, I think it is the truth. And of course, you know, first off, I'd like to say that I'm eternally grateful to all the miniatures games out there, companies like Games Workshop and Mantic and Weird and Privateer Press and Spartan and, well, I guess Spartan's defunct now, but you get the point. All those miniatures companies. I'm not talking about miniatures rule sets. I'm just talking about companies that actually make miniatures. And um, uh, we're eternally grateful to those for making great games, and they've soaked up a, a huge amount of our money and personal time and imagination. And um, thanks to these games, we've made friends, we've had laughs, and escaped from everyday life for just a little while. It's nearly magical that something in our world brings so many people so much joy. But the problem with miniatures games is that it's pretty much the worst choice a game maker can pick when deciding what kind of game they're making. Okay, And there's several reasons for this. Numbers, number one, game design is a pain in the ass for miniatures games. Compared to card games and board games and word games and RPGs and other types, miniatures games are way more complex to design. First off, you have all the size issue. You have to decide how big your models are going to be, because that affects many other things. Depending on the size of your models, you have firing ranges, you have board size, uh, movement ranges will be greatly changed depending on what the scale is. Obviously, a 5mm soldier should not move 12 inches, whether he's jump pack or not. A 28mm figure can move 12 inches jump pack, no big deal. You know, that would be like, the 5mm dude is like jumping... I don't even know, five football fields or something with her, if that was 12 inches. Um, and, you know, 10 millimeter games kind of skirt this issue because they're so small. You'll notice that games that use huge models for normal troops don't usually stick around in the market. Um, things that are like, uh, what's that, 32 millimeter? I think 32 millimeter, the, the two, unless you're getting around to like 10 millimeter, 5 millimeter, 15 millimeter, those smaller ones. The 25 millimeters like Warhammer size, and then there's like, I think 32 millimeter is the next size up. And very few miniatures games that are successful ever use that size. I actually can't think of one to begin with, like right off the top of my head, that uses that. Maybe Rage or one of those board games, but once again, they don't stick around very long. Um, nobody wants to see a giant six inch tall monster have a five inch shooting attack, or move two inches per turn, you know, it's got to feel uh, natural, you know, that your person, oh, this 28 millimeter person can move six inches, okay, that seems reasonable. Um, a five millimeter person moving six inches, that might be ridiculous. Um, but anyway, on second thought, that actually kind of sounds funny. A six-inch tall monster with a two-inch shooting range. I would name him, like, the Demon Prince of Impotence. And uh, all of his weapons would just be droopy. <laughs> if he didn't come with a disappointing face, I would just sculpt him on. Because it's like he's a, like he's a sad clown. Um, so, back to the topic. So, for each millimeter you choose to make your guys bigger, your game board has to be exponentially bigger to accommodate movement and ranges and everything else. If it didn't, all units would deploy next to each other right off the bat, and melee, I guess, would be king, right? When your game board is bigger, um, that's just more space required to play, and it's more space to store all the crap you're making them by, and, you know, of course, they need space to actually play it. 
So that's why, you know, not much more than a 6x4 is often popular. I know Warhammer used to be 8x4, which I think is a little ridiculous, but even then, you never see anything like, oh, the standard game size for this, the standard board size for our new miniatures game is 24 by 5 feet. Like, nobody does that, for obvious reasons. Um, so... Uh, so the the larger you make it, you know, this is going to cut some customers right out, right at the start when they hear what's required, because, oh, a 24 by 5 foot, I don't even, you know, some apartments don't even have a room, actually, a lot of houses don't even have a room with 24 inch long, uh, tw <laughs> 24 feet long. Um, plus, you know, the bigger the models, the more they cost, which just makes a big hurdle for new customers to get into the game anyway. So once you hedge your bets and you try to find a balance between effective rules and the required size of the board, you have to put your money where your mouth is. That's when we get to the logistics of manufacturing miniatures games. And I don't manufacture miniatures, obviously, because you can use your own miniatures in brutality. But I have followed a lot of Kickstarters. I've Kickstarted a lot of projects. And just from the outside looking in, it seems like a real bitch, okay? Um, if you follow the developer's progress behind any of these Kickstarters as they're going through the process, um, you probably already know that it's a real pain in the butt. I mean, compared to card games or even board games, the sheer amount of startup capital you need to make a game like this is why Kickstarter exists in the first place. So once you jump that hurdle and actually manage to have the cash to make the game, nine times out of ten, you're dealing with China when it comes to manufacturing. And of course, they're the cheapest game in town. And if you don't get the quote-unquote right company to make your stuff, you're in for a headache when it comes to quality. I'm not hating on the Chinese by any means, but they tend to want to make your crap, give it to you, and hope you don't look through it before they the, your check goes through. Because, uh, like we spoke to Matt Sable, um, Sable Army Transport, um, he said that, you know, he would have to send them a case when he changes companies and they would have to cut it all apart and then make their own version of it and send it to him and then he's got to check it and then he's got to send it back to them or whatever with revisions and it's a, it's a big headache. Uh, I just recently um, did a, uh, a Kickstarter an RPG book thing and they had like humidity issues in one of the warehouses which like ruined an entire run of the book and obviously these aren't miniatures but you get the point. Like it's a ton of stuff. I was part of another miniatures uh, Kickstarter one time, and the miniatures were, I don't know, I guess they were hand-packed, but somebody wasn't paying attention, and it was supposed to be like a set of six miniatures in this box, and you'd get six miniatures, but uh, a lot of times people would get two of one miniature and miss out. It was supposed to be six different individual miniatures, and they would get f four miniatures that were different, and then a duplicate of another miniature. So they would end up having five separate sculpts, but six models, because two of them were the same. And the sixth one they were supposed to get just wasn't in there. Or maybe other boxes would get a duplicate of that. I don't know what how that all shook out. But it seems like they're like, okay, let's just crank out your crap, get it done, and cash your check. And hopefully you don't notice anything. And like I said, I'm not hating on the Chinese, but like everyone, they want to put in as little effort as possible and get their paycheck. That's just life. You see employees like this everywhere you go in the world, and many companies act the same way. So if drug cartels have taught me anything, it's that you always inspect the merchandise before the deal is final. And also, if anybody gets in your way, you kill them. Well, that might be a little less relevant to game manufacturing, but 
I think you get the point. So as the game maker, you have to pay for literally tens of thousands of models and parts, maybe even millions. Then you get your shipment and you spend the next month or months sifting through all this crap and make sure they aren't Swiss cheese miniatures and they're not warped and you're not getting duplicates in the package and all that nightmare just to make sure that you don't get screwed. How would you like to say this sentence, okay? Okay. I just shifted I just sifted through 2000 left arms for generic soldier number 4. We got off easy. I only found um 175 defective ones. I'll just mark off this pile and have to send it back to the casters. Like seriously, that that is the minutia of what these people deal with. Or what about this sentence? Um Okay, I'm on week three of sifting through this crap and have to return some defective ones from each pile. Not to mention, I have to file a request for more because two of my piles were off by 20 or 30 bits. That's like being sedated by a doctor you don't trust. (laughs) The sheer nightmare of trying to make sure you don't get screwed is very real. Meanwhile, you're probably... uh, You've probably set a date of release for your product and people are waiting on you to produce the product that they bought uh, six months ago or a year ago. As time goes by, if you didn't get your money up front like via Kickstarter, you have a steadily cooling buzz over your product. If you take too long, people just move on to another game system and you're left with all this crap you can't sell. Um, I know GoFundMe and things, uh, you don't always get your money right away, but Kickstarter, I think you do up front. So when you really think about it, all in all, doing a miniatures game, you're just limiting your own market share because of all the hurdles that come with doing a miniatures game. Just by choosing a miniatures game as the format of your game, you immediately limit your market share. They tend to need assembly, and optionally, they need to be painted, and a lot of people like Heroclix players or Magic players would balk at the idea of having to paint models. They tend to be more expensive due to the number of parts, which some other people who wouldn't mind maybe assembling or painting, will then also make a face at. Because, oh, it's expensive. Okay. Then there's the space required to play the game, which will cut some portion of your possible clientele out due to their lifestyle. Maybe they have a, you know, they live in a van down by the river, possibly, and they just can't afford your 24-foot by 5-foot board, you know? Uh, Then there's the complexity that many miniatures games tend to have, which reduces your possible customers even further, because let's face it, there's a lot of dumb people out there. And what about the cost of terrain, a board, and army transports? As you list this stuff to the general populace, your percentage of general interest in your game will be steadily dropping. Um, Have you ever tried to mention, you know, Wargaming to a friend, and at first they're all like super, super excited about it? And they're like, oh, wow, that sounds awesome. I really want to come join your group. And you're like, oh, cool, that sounds really fun. And then they're like, so how much is it? And you're like, well, you know, start out armies, a couple hundred dollars. And they're like, what? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they come pre-painted. I'm like, no, they don't even, <laughs> they don't even come assembled. <laughs> like, bitch, please. They don't even come assembled. You got to glue them together yourself. And, uh, you know, the running joke with me and my wife is that uh, every time we go to a Mexican restaurant, I will not buy a, uh, oh man, what is it? Not a burrito, a fajita. I will not buy a fajita from a Mexican restaurant. And you know why? Is because they always want me to build the fajita. And my running joke is, 
with my wife. She's like, oh, why don't you get a fajita? And I go, you know what? I'm paying them to make my dinner, okay? I'm not paying them to give me the parts to make my dinner because I could have went to the store and bought the parts to make a fajita. So I'm going to stick with a burrito or something that they had to build because that's what I'm paying them for. And of course, I'm just joking. But essentially, that's the idea behind uh, miniature war games is that you know, you, you're literally doing all the work. And while you're talking to this friend, they slowly, you see it on their face, like they're slowly checking out because they're like, oh, I thought this was just a game you play. I did not realize it's an entire lifestyle. Um, you know, compared to miniatures games, making card games is child play. Like, l- there's low space required. They're lower cost because they're just cardboard. They're less likely for defects in manufacturing because they're literally print and die cut. They're cheaper shipping than metal or resin models because they're lighter. Um, easy for customers to transport because it's a pack of cards for crying out loud. No painting or assembly. and I mean, there's it, just so, so much easier to do. Not to mention, like I said, the cost of it. Um, I've made and published several uh, card games. And the card games are so much cheaper to, um, to manufacture because it's literally just playing cards. I mean, you can print whatever you want on it, but it's still just playing cards. Board games are a bit more involved to make and harder to sell than card games, but the space involved, overall cost, the lack of assembly and painting, among other things, make them a lot easier sell for the average person than miniatures games. And remember that all these game companies are feeding from the same trough of potential customers. So while Magic the Gathering, Munchkin, and Settlers of the, of the Catan, they, they may not seem like direct competition for 40k or Malifaux, they have essentially the same customer base and they really are competing for your time and money. So they're not in the exact same genre, but I mean, you only have X amount of hours in the day to do things for fun. And whatever game you're choosing is winning out over all the other games, which means that they are in competition with each other. And all these games obviously need a constant stream of sta- sales to stay afloat. Man, I'm, I'm tripping over my words here. Generally speaking, miniatures games need constant new blood because many of us only have one army. Now, I mean... I shouldn't say many of us, because I've got, like, an embarrassing number of armies, but once we (laughs) have given them the required $2,000 or whatever for a complete army, we're more or less finished spending until they're forced to come with a new book or a new model or something. Meanwhile, collectible trading card games live off a larger player base made up of a steady stream of microtransactions. Sales are going down a bit, Ah, just make a new set with some sweet new rules and cards in it. No molds to make, no CAD drawings to make, no real manufacturing outside of printing cards, and watch the microtransactions start flowing in again. I mean, Magic the Gathering essentially just prints money. They don't even make cards, they just print money. Of, Of course, I mean, Magic probably spends a decent amount on artwork for each new set and things like that, but I'm positive it's not a drop in the hat compared to the tidal wave of new money flowing in when a new set debuts. I know our local store, Phoenix Rising Games and Comics, is super busy when a new set... I mean, they even have, like, events, you know, for people to show up and, oh, well, the new set, we're going to do a draft or whatever. So, I guess what I'm saying is, in summary, we like to complain and moan about the cost of our favorite miniatures games, but they're fighting an uphill battle when it comes to keeping their income stream alive. They depend on new players constantly coming in, their costs are super high, China's a bitch... The rules are more complex and harder to make, and attracting new players is probably the hardest thing to do. I mean, after all this, if you really think about it, like, that's that's a real uphill battle. And, I mean, GW has been going gangbusters in, in the last 
two years or so, and I'm happy for them. But I don't know. I think it's really at the cost of all the other companies. In the 15 years or so that you saw GW, maybe 10 years, that you saw GW really start declining and not, you know, doing what they should as far as production and making new armies and models, uh, you saw a lot of games. I mean, when they killed Battlefleet Gothic, Firestorm Armada came out with Spartan Games. When they killed Warhammer Fantasy Battles, then Mantic had Kings of War waiting in the wings. Um, I mean, Kings of War, I'm sure, already existed, but it was still waiting in the wings, you know, already there. When they killed Blood Bowl, then uh, you've got, you know, Guild Ball and uh, a couple others. I think Mantic has one, too. Um, So, I mean, you see where, you know, them being the big giant in the industry, when they started atrophying, it left more space for other markets. And now that they are starting to grow again, I'm curious what effect it has on other companies. So... I'm not a GW sympathizer necessarily, but I am a business sympathizer because I know what it's like to run a business and no one ever thinks about the micro uh, managing of all the you know resources and the um, logistics of the shipments and all that stuff. So I do 100% agree GW is way overpriced and we pay a premium for this game. There is no doubt about it. But the amount of quality that we get and the massive community that we get, and the constant FAQs and updates, and, you know, they're trying to balance the game, constant new models, constant new books. I mean, we are getting quality for the dollars we pay. It's just that we're paying premium, but, you know, you don't have to pay premium. So, I'm just afraid somebody's going to be like, oh, you're really sucking up to GW. And to them, I say, this episode was sponsored by Games Workshop. That's right, Games Work... No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) I I wish, you know, GW... I want some of that GW money. That's right. Some of that G-dub money. Uh, but anyway, no, I'm, I'm just saying. So next time you bitch and complain about prices, while we do pay a premium, got to realize that miniatures games have to be probably the hardest game genre to make out of card games, board games, even like the other military war games use like little chits, like little cardboard cutouts. They don't use models. So... It's it's a very unique genre. Anyway, hopefully you walk away with this with just a tad bit more uh, sympathy for old Games Workshop and other miniatures games. Toodaloo!